to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and this week I'm joined by Keith Amon. He is a author. He's been writing a blog at themonstersknow.com for quite some time and turned that into a book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, which is a wonderful resource that I've been going through here in recent weeks uh, for D&D 5th edition. And I'm really excited to get his thoughts about the book, about encounter design, and a few other topics. So, Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I've been aware of your recite for quite some time. And in looking through the intro of the book, one of the things that really kind of intrigued me is that a lot of the motivation for this book and kind of how you approach D&D in some ways came from playing the game XCOM which mm-hmm. is something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, so maybe before we get into that, just how would you, could you introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about how you started playing D&D? I started playing D&D when I was in high school. Uh, I actually had gotten the Holmes Blue Box basic set uh, when I was in fifth grade. Uh, I believe fifth or sixth grade. I forget exactly when. Uh, yeah, I guess it was fifth grade uh, because it was an article in the September-October 1979 issue of Games Magazine that informed me about it. And uh, I didn't at that time have anyone to explain to me exactly what I was supposed to do with the set, and I, I kind of stumbled around with a couple of friends, but we didn't get very far. We didn't play anything you could call a campaign. We created some characters, and, and then we kind of got stuck. Sure. Uh, so it wasn't until high school that I fell in with a group that had been playing other role-playing games, including Dungeons & Dragons, and knew what to do with it, had a couple of people who had taken on the Dungeon Master role. And uh, the first real group I played with was a group of four of us. My friend Julian, who I'm still very close friends with more than 30 years later, uh, was the first DM in that group. And then we cycled through the position. We actually uh, had an ongoing group of four characters, but every time one of us took on the DM role, we played our own character as an NPC that was traveling along with the party. Okay, sure. And um, I think that might be one of the reasons why I, as a DM, am very comfortable running absent players' PCs in the background uh, as NPCs uh, when somebody can't make it for a week or whatever. Um... You know, you can't really ha- you can't really take part in a campaign like that and be truly adversarial toward your players because your own character is one of those characters, and so uh, you are you are yourself sort of a player at the same time you're the DM. You're you you have representation on the PC's side, and uh, I I really enjoyed being part of that group. Um, and I'm really grateful to have gotten started with a group in which the DM the DM role was not seen as adversarial to the players. 
And and your group, which you talk a little bit about in the preface of the book, Mm -hmm. played more systems than just D&D. You were playing GURPS and some other things as well. Well, the GURPS came way later. GURPS came way later. At the time, we were only playing AD&D. We would occasionally play a game like uh, Villains and Vigilantes or uh, some of them with with other friends of mine played Call of Cthulhu. I never really did. Uh, And our V&V games... (laughs) <laughs> they they weren't really what you could call campaigns. They were mainly create ridiculous superheroes, send them off to a plotless fight in a warehouse, and <laughs> and that's the end of your evening. Sure, um, and that can be fun. Oh, it was loads of fun. I oh, mean, yeah. that was exactly the way we wanted to play it, uh, but. But the Dungeons and Dragons campaign was ongoing. It lasted for two or three years, and uh, I think it started my senior year of high school. Okay. And uh, it was it was when I went away to college that I started and 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 stopped playing with this group that I started moving into other systems, primarily Shadowrun at that time. GURPS came later on when I moved back to Chicago. And started playing with Julian again, and his group at that time were the ones playing GURPS. Uh, he was the only member of our original group uh, who was doing that. The other two guys had gone their own directions. Okay. And then did you con- continuously play uh, tabletop games, or was there a break before when you got back into it in 2015? It's it's been pretty discontinuous. Yeah. Uh, during the '90s, I didn't really have a group to play with, uh, and I drifted much more into German-style board games. Uh, when I moved back to Chicago in 2000, uh, that was when the GURPS group was going, and that lasted a few years. But then that started to fizzle and uh there was quite a there's there's been quite a long time in which i've been out of touch with role playing games in general and i never played 3rd edition D&D i never played version 3.5 i never played 4th edition which surprises a lot of people because apparently 4th edition was very tactically oriented and the monster manual included uh, tactical instructions for various monsters and, and incorporated some of the concepts that I just by happenstance uh, <laughs> began using on my own. Um, everything I know about these editions is by hearsay. The last edition I played before 5th edition was second edition just after it was released. And by that time, I was already drifting towards Shadowrun. And, and so it's it's interesting, I think, for you to come into this fifth edition with fresh eyes, not having been through, I guess some would say a meat grinder of the previous editions, uh, but just those experiences. And I, I would think I was just marking about this today on uh, on Twitter that I think this book, uh, again, uh, the monsters know what they're doing, that it reminds me a lot of the 4E, kind of the early monster manuals where some of the monsters, they would have a specific section for tactics, and it would educate the DM about, well, here's not only what this monster does, but here's how it would go about using it. Right. And it was really helpful, and when I wrote a, a brief monster book with Limitless Adventures for to raise money for uh, a charity, we had kind of copied that format, and I found it really useful. And 
I think it's in fifth edition, some of that is missing and you, you filled that void, which I think is a, it's a wonderful resource. Thank you. To go back to what I started talking about with, with XCOM, it seems like a lot of this kind of inspiration about tactics comes from playing that game and maybe not playing that game so well to start out with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I played it very poorly to start out with. I got wiped over and over again. Uh, to, to clarify, we're talking about uh, XCOM. First it was XCOM Enemy Unknown. Yes. Then it was uh, uh, the DLC XCOM Enemy Within. And then XCOM 2 came later. Right. Uh, and yeah, I played XCOM, all of those except the DLC. Uh-huh. But they were a good time. XCOM Enemy Unknown was the one that really forced me to start thinking about what my thinking was missing. And I'm really grateful for that because I've always had an interest in strategy games. And for much of my life, I just wasn't any good at them. No matter how much I liked them, no matter how good I wanted to be at them, I didn't have anyone to hold my hand and say, this is how you think strategically. This is how you approach a problem and tackle it in a strategic way. And it took a lot of pieces falling into place to give me that. One of them was getting a master's degree in education and and learning about how to learn. Uh, reading books like Josh Waitzkin's The Art of Learning and uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Oh God, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, whichever one has the 10,000 hours. Well, there's, he's had a few blank. Outliers, outliers. Outliers, right. Yeah. Things like that. Once I finally started to discipline myself to think about these things in this way uh not only did my x game com x game xcom game improve but so did my chess game which had been miserable for my entire life it's i'll be honest it's still not that great um my elo rating peaked in the 1100s but it's still way better than i was and uh so when I came to 5th edition, my first experience with it, which was at the behest of my wife who wanted me to run a game for her and some of her coworkers, my first experience with it was, wow, they have really streamlined this game from what I remember. Okay. And that is a very, very good thing, especially since I'm trying to introduce it to a group of people who, with one exception, had never played before or who had played very, very little. It was even a little while after that before I started appreciating not only how streamlined it was, but how systematic it is, how uh, how consistent its internal mechanisms are, and how certain rules interact and how everything is written to be taken exactly literally. It's – it's, it's, I, I hate to give the impression that it's not a fun game because it is a fun game, but uh, it is very legalistic. And that's a quality I actually appreciate about it because – the difference between having good lawyers and bad lawyers can be pretty big. And uh, 
it really rewards a thorough understanding of how the various rules interact, especially around advantage and disadvantage and around conditions. Right. It reminds me of what you were talking about with XCOM, where there's there's a structure, there's rules to that game that if you're not quite sure what those rules are, it's challenging to play that game effectively. Yeah, you have to understand you have to understand the various uh, the roles, the positions, um, how to space your squad out. You absolutely have to know to make use of cover. If if it's not occurring to you to use cover, you're going to get wrecked. You're right. going to get completely wrecked. If you're not uh, playing your squad in the right order, because there's definitely uh, an order of operations for an XCOM squad that works better than other orders or just trying to move your characters in some kind of random order. So... The other thing about 5th edition D&D is the consistency of features and traits, uh, the, the language that's used over and over again. Uh, it's got a lot of boilerplate in it. Ways of saying things that are used repeatedly so that you, you immediately know they're talking about doing more or less the same thing. Even if you're talking about different features, you're still seeing these features handled in the same way over and over again. And so you start realizing uh, that they're going to have things in common. Um, not only does it really help you think about the tactics of the game if you're looking at it analytically – uh, it also simply speeds things up during gameplay. It, it reduces drag because you don't have to – you're not always looking at something new. You're looking at something that is a lot like something else you've seen, and so you don't have to wonder about it as much. Well, and I think there's a lot of commonalities among different types of – Attacks and things like that that come up in combat, different types of roles that uh, monsters take on. And one of the things that you have in the book, it says, you know, why these tactics? And I think the thing that I've found really interesting is to quote you here, with only a small number of exceptions, mostly constructs and undead, every creature wants first and foremost to survive. Seriously wounded creatures will try to flee unless they're fanatics or intelligent beings who believe They'll be hunted down and killed if they do flee. Some creatures will flee even sooner. And so I read that and was thinking about it, which makes perfect sense. <laughs> you know, that these, these things aren't just sort of roaming around mindlessly waiting for adventuring parties to come in and, and mop them up. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they got their own lives. They got, they, they're going about their business, you know. They don't yes. want to be... Uh... So my, my thought is, as I was reading it, and kind of thinking about all, you know, games I've played both as a player and as a DM. And I, I wonder, as you run games, how do you balance kind of running running encounters, running uh, adventures where these kind of monsters that the party is interacting with, where they do act as these realistic entities that have their own thoughts, feelings, emotions, instincts, and maybe flee when they need to, use the best 
aspects of their environment to their advantage um, versus just letting the players have a win from time to time? Like, what is the balance you strike there? Well, for starters, uh, I want my players to have lots of wins. I am fundamentally on their side, and I think every good DM is fundamentally on their player's side uh, because you are not there to try to defeat the party. You are there to give your party a good time. You're, you're there to give your players a good time. And I just happen to believe that a victory that you have to work for is more satisfying than a victory you don't have to work for. And I also think that, especially in the mechanics of experience points, if you're using experience points and not milestone leveling, there's always a little bit of incentive to kill things you don't need to kill. And uh, I think that having monsters run away at a reasonable point or surrender or um, – whatever, rather than just fight to the death, uh, gives you a little bit of an ethics check. Uh, it, it forces you to consider, do I really need to chase these monsters down or this NPC villain down and kill them? Or have I accomplished enough by simply forcing them to flee, forcing them to retreat, forcing them to surrender? Um, I would definitely... I, I definitely reward my players. I give them full experience points for defeating a monster, whether they kill it, force it to surrender, drive it away, whatever. As long as they accomplished the actual objective of that location, I, they've earned the full experience points as far as I'm concerned. I'm not interested in trying to force them to... Uh, kill every monster, every enemy. Also, if you look at the Dungeon Master's Guide and the process by which challenge ratings are calculated, it becomes clear that challenge rating assumes that monsters are being used to the best of their capabilities, that they are maximizing the damage that they might do. Which means that if you're running monsters in a suboptimal way, you're not giving your players the full challenge that the encounter is meant to represent. You know, you might be playing a CR7 monster as a CR4 or CR5 monster. Um, so when you have the monsters run away or surrender or do whatever to preserve their own existence, that balances out a little bit the increased difficulty that comes with playing playing them to the best of their capabilities. Um, so you give with one hand, you, you take away with the other a little bit. Um, and encounterbalancing is always an art there are also often narrative reasons for throwing a battle that the PCs simply can't handle at them. Um, and in cases like that, what you have to do is simply make sure that they have a way out. 
that they have an opportunity to flee. Um, whether they choose to take it or not is up to them. But they they if you're going to give them something that is deadly for them, they have to – it's only fair to give them a way to – get away once they realize that it is going to be deadly for them. Is there an example of a, maybe a more common monster that comes to mind that you think is just not used well? And I mean, it seems like that's one of the main, um, you know, motivations for writing the blog is to kind of put this information out there. I've been asked that before and it's a hard question for me to answer because I don't know what, the mass of dungeon masters out there do. I don't. Right. I don't go around collecting stories of badly played monsters. <laughs> you know, I know that's, my own. That's experience. the next book. <laughs> I know my own experience with my own campaign, yeah. which was my playing some monsters in a way that felt subpar to me. Okay. Uh, that was with the uh, starter set, Lost Minds of Fandelver. Okay, sure. And, yeah, I ran. Uh, I ran a group through that. You know, um, I. I have a uh, PDF copy of the AD&D Monster Manual here, uh, and this kind of uh, calls back to what I was talking about before about the consistency of description of abilities in 5th edition. So 5th edition goblins have a trait called Nimble Escape that allows them to hide or disengage as a bonus action. Very precisely set out the timing, the nature of the ability, and it really adds personality to combat with goblins. It defines their personality. Okay. So now I'm looking at the goblin uh, description in the AD&D Monster Manual. This is the first edition of the game. There's nothing about that. There's nothing like that. Uh, The description here is, goblins are slave takers and fond of torture. They have a tribal society, the strongest ruling the rest. And you know, one of the experiences I had uh, playing D&D back in those days is that there was really no way to distinguish between a goblin, a kobold, and an orc a lizard man, um, a knoll, what have you, um, they were just bags of hit points that, that ran at you and yelled and, you know, stabbed you. Yeah, that's, um, you write that in the book, that they're just like, rawr, 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 stab, stab, yeah. stab, yeah. Yeah, and um, that is the and, – and not only that, but all of this stuff is in descriptive text. None of it is at the top where the stats are given. There is no – description of a systematic ability that they have and they use. And so that to me is the really beautiful thing about 5th edition is once you have a trait like Nimble Escape laid out, that adds character to the monster. And it adds a kind of character that Everyone can use. Everyone, if they're paying attention, knows to use. And it makes goblins very different from kobolds, which do not have a trait like that. Kobolds actually can't do very much unless they are 
banding together like ants and and working together cooperatively. And so the fact that kobolds have nothing going for them whatsoever except pack tactics gives you now uh, some insight into their society as being cooperative and anti-individualistic. And maybe they actually have an instinct to work together. Uh, whereas goblins, you know, are very much everyone for themselves. Um, kobolds just work together without even thinking about it. They just do it instinctively. Um, and now you've got a difference between right. these two low-level cannon fodder type monsters. And as you're talking about kobolds and goblins, it reminds me, uh, within the last few years, I ran uh, The Sunless Citadel, which is an old module that they updated for 5th for edition. Don't and, spoil this for me because I just started playing this. Okay. Yeah. So A friend of mine is running us through it. How can I – well, it doesn't have to be that adventure. Just in, okay. <laughs> just as you're talking about this uh, nimble escape um, feed and like kobolds kind of swarming, that's, that's a way they, they could maybe get advantage over the party. I'm just really thinking about any adventure where you kind of have a dungeon delve, there's a series of rooms, and – for goblins, with the kind of tactics you list out in here, it's a lot of ambushes, of sneaking around, uh, getting cover, shooting from behind cover, running away. Yep. And I would imagine as a player going through like one or two encounters of that, that's kind of interesting. And if it becomes like that's all it is, which again, any one thing that you keep doing as a DM, it's not great for, for the adventure. But I wonder how I'm, th- I'm trying to figure out the culmination of that. So, does the party finally advance to a point where all the goblins are hiding and they're shooting, or do those things just flee and they're just never seen? Like, how would you handle something like that? I would continue to have goblins act according to their nature. Sure. You can. I mean, there are there are goblin bosses. There are other goblinoids who might be organizing goblins for their own purposes. I ran a side quest for uh, my main group um, that was tied into the backstory of my wife's character in which her home village was under assault by goblins. And it turned out that these goblins were being led by hobgoblins, which – made them more deadly because they were organized. And even then, every once in a while, they would encounter a goblin patrol uh, or a couple of uh, goblin scouts. And when they were away from the eyes of the hobgoblins, they reverted to acting more like goblins. Uh, And uh, But at that point... It's no longer a major threat. It's when you catch the goblins alone, you get a little bit of comic relief or they attempt to uh, – trying to keep this PG-13. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> they yeah, use some questionable language. <laughs> they, they try to mess with you. Yeah. Uh, they, um, they try to uh, – lead you into a trap or something like that. Or you try to interrogate them and they just keep telling you whatever you want to hear and contradicting themselves. And um, 
eventually you just get tired of it and let them go. Yeah. Or, uh, of of the combat encounters you run, how many? Like it might be hard to come down with a percentage of them, but what percent would you say that there are monsters that either flee or surrender versus encounters where it's sort of a fight to the death? I very rarely insist on a fight to the death. Sure. Um, only, uh, only monsters or NPCs that are fanatical or believe that they have no other way out. Uh, they are the only ones who fight to the death. I don't tend to have a lot that surrender. Um, but that is more to do with the nature of the enemies that my players' characters tend to be fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, running away is, I'd say, 80% of the combats that I run my characters, uh, my players through, um, end in either the monsters running away or the players killing the monsters while they're running away, while they're trying to run away. Okay. I don't, I'm trying to think of like my own style of running a game. I would, I would probably say that the percentage is almost inverted. <laughs> where, really? Well, I'm trying to think because well, for starters, I think anytime a a character does surrender, a monster surrenders if it's a, if it's some type of intelligent creature or something like that, it always brings in this extra work of, well, now the players want to interrogate this creature. Yeah. And that can take anywhere from five minutes to an hour. <laughs> if the party's very keen on this has to mean something since this creature surrendered. So it must, it must know something and you can, there's, you can do all kinds of creative things with that, which is cool. And at the same time, if, if that comes up over and over again, it gets, it gets to be a little tiring it's very difficult when you are running a published adventure and you don't necessarily know everything that that NPC or that monster might know. That that makes those interrogations very, very difficult and, and very stop and start. And that's one of the reasons why I tend not to want to do that very much. It's better if they just skedaddle. <laughs> and when just trying to get out of there. And when they skedaddle, do you tend to? I think I asked this earlier, but do you tend to, like, they're just off screen, gone, or do you keep track of? Okay. Oh well, now there, that that depends. Two goblins scattered. So where might they end up? They're going to be in this room. They're going to be injured or whatever, or they're yeah. going to alert these folks and. That type of chain reaction stuff can be interesting. It's more a track, and then eventually that kind of chain reaction stuff is very interesting to me. Yeah, I I love that stuff. Um, so maybe it how depends do you, a lot. It depends that? a lot on. Um, so okay, in the starter set, in uh, the last location in the starter set, I'm going to try to tread lightly without uh, spoiling anything here. You have a quote-unquote dungeon that if you note what kind of monsters or NPCs or creatures are in each room, you can basically divide that dungeon into three regions, three areas. 
And each one, well, two out of three of those areas are each controlled by a different faction. And these factions are not friendly to each other, but they also pretty much stay out of each other's way. And then the third area is, is different. But um, if a monster runs away and it still has members of its own faction that it can get to, oh, you better believe it's going to try to get help and bring them in. And suddenly this encounter that was supposed to be in room eight is now relocating itself to room six because that's where the alarm came from. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so you're going to run into monsters or NPC villains in new places. Somebody might, you know, go for reinforcements. Or, uh, but now if you have nobody from that faction left, if if these are the last ones, if you got the last two goblins and they have no more backup at all, they're just going to flee the scene entirely. Uh, there is no longer any reason for them to try to stick around. And do you ever find that that creates some unbalanced things that you weren't planning on? I don't. Uh, I don't worry about it too much because um, it's the overall. It's it's the total. The sum total of everything that matters. And you may occasionally have a situation in which the uh, the PCs are encountering. Uh, more enemies at once than they were perhaps intended to. But the flip side is the backup doesn't show up right away. It always takes a few rounds. And so when uh, while, while the ones that ran away are off getting help and bringing help, the rest of the party still has time to deal with the ones who stayed behind. Or maybe there aren't any who stay behind. And so right. really it's not that – it's not even that they're having to fight more enemies at once than they originally had to, but that maybe they don't get a chance to take a short rest in between. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that doesn't bother me. Well, and I think it, it would make things – in some way, like this type of Dell, where there's a series of rooms and there's a barracks, there's a kitchen, and there's all these other like storage rooms you get into. I think traditionally it's like, well, in room six you find this, and in room mm -hmm. ten this is there, and it takes I think a little bit more work to treat it all as one fluid encounter, dynamic, where yeah. it's like, oh. Two goblins just like popped in and shot and then ran off. <laughs> but that's but that's the kind of work I like to do. Right. I mean that's that's to me that's that adds seasoning to the game. I would I would be disappointed by a game in which that kind of stuff wasn't happening. I really like the dynamism of having all of the non player characters and all of the monsters living their lives and, and going around doing their own things and behaving in ways that make sense for them, um, which is not just sitting in one place waiting to be killed. <laughs> and I, so what are some suggestions you have for, I'm just thinking of how you, how you manage and run that type of encounter or series of encounters at the table, even something like the mechanics of initiative, 
So I think these closed encounters lend itself to like, okay, roll for initiative. Let's see where we're at. Well, if there's uh, if there's a chance that the player characters d- are not going to have any downtime before running into another group of monsters, if action order is still going to matter, uh, I retain the initiative counts, and I don't uh, I don't make people roll again. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to deal with the accounting of trying to change the order there. And what I will often do in prep is roll the initiative for all of the potential enemies beforehand. And that is in my notes. I I will just – I do it away from the table and I say, these creatures are going to go on this count. And then I make myself – I always uh, in my notes, every potential count – a combat encounter I always list the enemies and their hit points and during the combat encounter I'm going to be marking I'm, I'm going to be keeping the totals off that cross off the old right in the new cross off the old right in the new and uh, in that I will also put the initiative counts of the enemies and then I just write in the uh, player characters initiative rules around that okay so I wanted to get to a few of the more iconic or sort of interesting descriptions that you have here in the book as examples. One of the things I really liked is you talk about the monster's type and how that's an excellent indicator of, the, of its basic goals and desires. Mm-hmm. So kind of beast and monstrosities you group together. Uh, there's dragons, humanoid, uh, undead, celestials and fiends, aberrations. Uh, fey constructs uses and elementals and you kind of go into each one of those things just as a tribe almost what to expect from mm-hmm. from that type of monster mm-hmm. uh, which i think is really helpful for people and then for some of the perhaps more intelligent creatures there's more space devoted to like okay here's how this monster this creature would act and one of the ones i really enjoyed was the mage <laughs> Because you list it out of, and I really enjoy this, where it's like round one, here's what's happening. Round Mm -hmm. two, round three, round four. And like round five, it's like, why are you still here? Like, get out of here. (laughs) Which which that makes, I mean, perfect sense if you're a mage. And it's, I think if you ran a mage that way, it would be quite a challenging encounter. And it would be memorable. Um so I guess how did that exam- how did that come up? Like how did you what were you inspired to how were you inspired to write that one? Well, whenever you have a creature with exceptional intelligence, whether it's humanoid or uh, some kind of monster, the lich also comes to mind, which is another example. Yeah, the lich, the beholder, the uh, the art. I mean, you want the mage? Talk about the archmage, uh, a coven of hags. There are a couple of things that make analyzing a monster very, very complicated. One is having a very large spell repertoire, but another yeah. is another is simply having extremely high intelligence because you have to you have to then play out the thought experiment of figuring out the thought process of a monster that in all likelihood is more intelligent than you are. Right. So you really have to be disciplined 
to figure out how a creature like that is going to act. And, you know, one of the things, one of the sort of crutches you can lean on is to think about intelligence as quickness of mind. Someone or something that is extraordinarily intelligent can see possibilities faster than you can, which means that figuring out how they're going to act means taking the time to look at all the possible ways something could go and all of the possible ways they could spend the resources, the traits, the features, the spells that they have. And in a in the case of a character like the mage or the archmage or the lich or whatever, you have to just take the time to look at everything, dig into the various implications, think about how all of these things relate to their probable goals, and just be super systematic about it. Because I, the mage is one of very, very few monsters that I actually give a round-by-round, play-by-play. Um, yeah, it's a good like six or seven pages in the book. Description of. Yeah, because because the mage has that very specific combination of what's actually sort of a modest number of really useful combat spells, but a very high intelligence that would know what to do with those spells. And also the fact that they have, you know, according to lore, put a whole lot of work into getting where they are, and that's not something they're going to gamble away. That's not something they are going to treat recklessly. I mean, your average mage probably has the mindset that their life is simply worth more than other people's because (laughs) they worked so hard and spent so much time getting where they are. You know, they have a high ego score. Yes. Yeah, it's it's your you know it's your arrogant surgeon archetype, right? Nobody else can do what the skilled surgeon can do they've spent uh, a lot of time and money training themselves to be what they are how often when you run a mage does that mage escape well it's funny because the only time i have run a mage uh was in a published adventure in which the mage starts off as an opponent but is an opponent more or less against their will. Okay. And when my players ran it, uh, they managed to turn the mage to their own side. Nice. Um, But the mage still followed the playbook, just used uh, their spell on the PC's behalf instead. I think one thing that would be interesting for, especially like boss monsters or even like these kind of elite monsters where if they for example this mage where you know this is an obstacle that's in the way the players need to get to x and the mage is in the way so the players battle with her or him and maybe the mage does some serious damage to one or more of them maybe even taking one out and then escapes i'm just like what does that do to the campaign 
I would imagine like the players would be, we got to find this person <laughs> or, yeah. or do they think like, whoa, like we need to stay away from that person. But one way or the other, you could, you could do a lot of interesting things with that rather than, well, you find the mage in the tower and after an interesting little battle, the mage is dead. And now what's next? Yeah. Um, well, and again, it, it, it all, so much of it comes down to why is this person there? Why is the mage there? Why are the PCs fighting this mage? What does the mage have to gain? What does the PCs what do the PCs have to gain? Motivation and discrepancies in knowledge are two of the most interesting things to me in D&D encounters because motivations tell you the various ways that a combat can end. They they tell you what what are the, what are the different ways that this can uh, turn out. How many of these could be considered successes for the PCs? How many would be considered failures? And also, what does the opponent know that the PCs don't? What do the PCs know that the enemy doesn't? And these discrepancies can lead to some interesting decision-making that might be on a level above simply what their combat capabilities are. For example, you might have an adventure in which the mage is guarding some sort of item that's very dangerous, and the mage knows that it's dangerous, knows what kinds of things can cause it to go kerblooey, and the PCs don't know that. And so the PCs come in doing this and this and that, and maybe the mage is just following the script, but maybe the mage is freaking out, not because the mage is worried for their own life, their own safety, but because... You fools, this thing could blow up this entire county. <laughs> you know? um, the entire so, realm could go down. Yeah, and and there's no way that a fly spell is going to get the mage out of this situation. So now the mage has to somehow prevent the PCs from, you know, making the item go kerblooey. I mean, there's there's so many ways to add a little twist that makes it combat plus and it sounds you know, like there's combat yeah. and then there's combat plus so the monsters know what they're doing is mostly a way to make the combat interesting and distinctive even in situations where you don't have combat plus but as a dungeon master you have opportunities and options to make an encounter into combat plus um, to offer ways in which the combat encounter can be subverted or circumvented through social interaction ways in which yeah. discrepancies in knowledge can lead people uh, or monsters to act in ways that may not be optimal uh, and so forth. I mean, there there are so many variables to tweak here. And it sounds like a lot of your, I'd say, style is to have more of that combat plus where there's 
you know, certainly there's dice rolling, there, there's damage and tactics, and also some social components, things that are moving the story in different directions. Yeah, I, I was not a huge fan of the X-Files when it was on TV. But I, I watched it some, and the one thing I the one thing that that show did that I liked the most is that it didn't make it humans versus aliens. It was humans versus aliens versus these other aliens, and just the fact of of making it multilateral made it way more interesting to me. And I think you even have like a, there's a blurb in the book where it talks about consider. These like monster versus monster versus the party. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you have a boring monster, battles. if you have a boring monster, and there's just no way to make that monster interesting, one of the ways to make the encounter interesting is to give that monster an enemy that may also be an enemy of the party. Sure. And then you've got a three-way battle, and people have to figure out how to prioritize things. Which again can be a little bit more heavy lifting when you're organizing that and trying to see how it plays out but certainly uh, quite a bit of fun as well yeah i think it's i think it's worth the work it's more than worth the work it pays off you know as we're talking about you know combat and how the adventuring party kind of interacts with the obstacles that are in front of them what what i found either as a player or certainly as, as a dm is sort of the classic the party turns into a bunch of murder hobos and <laughs> You know, that's not something as a player, as a DM, I really enjoy all that much. Although I do see, I wouldn't say value, because that sounds wrong, but the kind of the satisfaction that players might get from defeating something. Um, yeah. And if it's, or there's a source of evil, ending, oh, yeah. ending that source of evil. So if there's oh, yeah. some of these I've... more intelligent creatures that run away or flee, and if that's something that happens kind of often, I could see players getting a little bummed out. So what are your yeah. thoughts about that? Well, this is actually a very big concern of mine. Um, I, I absolutely do not provide incentives for my players to go murder hobo. I, I try to create specific disincentives for them okay. to go murder hobo. Um, I, I am personally very concerned with ethics and morality, and I've, I've thought about the various uh, issues – that uh, uh, are attached to the uh, experience point system and how traditionally it has rewarded killing creatures, uh, which is not something I specifically want to encourage. Um, I do, like I like I said before, having a monster run away forces you to reflect on whether it is actually necessary to kill this fleeing opponent or whether simply driving them off or even just scaring them off is enough. I will if if people start committing crimes, I will throw waves and waves of guards at them. Right. Um, you know, it turns into guards, Skyrim, they just yeah, keep coming if, after you. If guards are not enough, then uh, you know, if if the PCs are establishing themselves as public enemies, then by gum, there's going to be some bounty hunters after them, um, you know. But also, I, I, I get where you're coming from about can you allow a truly evil enemy to flee, and that that is definitely something that I think about quite a bit. And 
I, there are a lot of people, and I, I 100% understand where they're coming from with this, want to play in games in which real world evils that they have to, they personally have to confront do not exist. They, they idealize the setting so that these things are just not there, so that they don't have to put up with them. Well, I think some groups will even kind of set some ground rules of like, here's some stuff we're not going to touch on in this campaign. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, and I, I understand totally where they're coming from with that. Where I tend to come from is I like a game in which evils exist and can be fought and defeated. I don't want a game in which the man doesn't exist. I want to be able to defeat the man. I want to be able to, you know, I want to be homie the clown. I want to get in there and bop the man. And to me, it is very satisfying to have opportunities to confront the evil and strike it down. That's that's the kind of person I am, and, and I try to provide those kinds of opportunities to my players. And of course, you always, no matter no matter what game you're playing, no matter what kind of safety tools you do or don't use, it is always imperative to treat sensitive topics with sensitivity. Right. But as far as as far as murder hoboism is concerned, um, I, I definitely think that evil evil actions are going to have logical consequences somewhere down the line. So it sounds like you're aware that there is a, a potential payoff for the players that is – it's almost like kind of part of the game's fabric that, okay, if we introduce this evil or nasty thing, there's going to be a way for the players to do something about it. Yes, and, and also, and also, it cuts both ways. If the players start doing things that are uh, pernicious, then the world is going to start coming after them. Right. Um, because I, you know, the arc of history does not necessarily bend toward justice. We have to bend it that way. And I'm, I'm, oh yeah, I'm going to bend it that way in my settings. Sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. And for the younger audience, you might have to search for the Homie the Clown reference, but it's In Living Color, <laughs> which was a fantastic show back in the day. Uh, some some good characters for back for in that the day. Uh, yeah, I'm 43, so I'm back when God's grandma was a little girl. As one of my professors nice. used to say, I stole. Yes. Yeah, that, as I was reading, that was one of the things that I was just aware of. Like this, I wouldn't say nagging, but it was just this thoughtful idea of, yeah, like if everything is based sort of its instinct of survival, there'd be a lot of skirmishes where things get away. Mm -hmm. And sort of what, what does that do to you as a player of like, Oh, okay. Um, did we really solve this problem or the, 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 yeah, the people, the opponents, whether they be NPCs or monsters that can continue to do significant harm in the world. Those, they might run away, but your PCs will probably try to chase them down and finish them off, and that's okay. That's part of the ethical calculus of the D&D &D world. Um, 
on the other hand, if you're making a point of chasing down harmless mooks who are not going to, you know, be particularly effective in uh, their depredations on the world once you've driven them away from whatever they're up to now. Like if you're if you are big time heroes in the process of saving the world and you know you are on a quest to destroy this artifact or you have to do blah 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 whatever you know right. if you're doing huge earth shaking important things and you're going to take the time to chase down a lizard folk guard why, why are you doing that why why is this you know, he's just a lizard folk. Let him go. I mean, come on. You know, he's probably got a family. He's doing this to pay bills. You know, just trying to get yeah. by. You know, think about who's the real enemy here. So now I'm just envisioning this like clerk style movie about, you know, goblins in the D&D world. Mm-hmm. Funny. And so I was, I was curious about this, and kind of ending up here. Earlier in the year, I ran a poll uh, on Twitter. Uh, I was kind of asking about monster design and encounter balance and how much that mattered to players for enjoyment. And the most common response was somewhat important, uh, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Uh, but there was about a third of the respondents who said it's not important at all. And I guess from your experience, and I don't know if you want to call this encounter difficulty or how challenging it is but Mm -hmm. for you how do you like is every combat this nuanced or do you sort of pepper in things that are maybe simpler versus like yeah this one's going to be a little complicated you're going to have to work for it no the e well so there's there's two dimensions here one is the complexity and one is the difficulty these are these are two different axes these are x and y but they do relate to each other the difficulty of a combat encounter, I think, should generally be a function of the narrative flow. And what I mean by that is that you want the difficulty to build gradually, to have uh, moments of tension and relief, tension and relief. And when you need the tension, you need the more difficult encounters. And when you want relief, you can drop back to something easier. And generally speaking, the peaks, the moments when the difficulty peaks and you want the greatest tension are the moments when making things more complicated pays off the most. If you're just doing like a rising action battle that's – not supposed to be all that difficult. It's not a moment of high tension. It's more uh, – it's almost serving the function of informing you, informing the, the player characters. This is the kind of thing you're up against. These are the kind of forces that are arrayed against you. Maybe you can get a secret or or an item out of them, some kind of import, something that's going to be important later. But the combat itself is not the na- it, it, that's not the challenge. Mm-hmm. That's not the point. The point is that um, in the narrative, 
this is giving you some some information. Uh, it's softening you up a little bit so that maybe you don't go into uh, something later with all your resources, and that's adding uh, some difficulty. Combats like that do not need to be complicated, and complicating them is probably a waste of time. Okay. So if if it's not a moment of high tension, it doesn't need to be overly complicated either. A combat that is supposed to be very easy doesn't need to be complicated at all, and it shouldn't be complicated at all. Now, there are only certain kinds of circumstances in which you want a combat to be a complete pushover. Again, those are things where those are things where the combat is not the point. Mm-hmm. Those are those kinds of battles are almost nothing more than signifiers, uh, like token opposition in the form of guards. Mm-hmm. All those combats do is all they serve to do is say this place is guarded. That's it. It doesn't need to do anything more than that. Um, so don't make it do anything more than that. Get over it and move on. Um, it's it's the moments of high tension that need to have the most depth. And it's also those moments of very, very high tension where you can most get away with actually making an encounter deadly. And when it's most appropriate to make an encounter deadly. But a deadly encounter also has its own function. And that function is to communicate you're not ready. Which sometimes is narratively appropriate. But any kind of battle that is going to be climactic, those can't be deadly because the party has to have that chance to win. Now, I'm talking deadly in fact, not according to the uh, encounter building guidelines in Chapter 3 of the Dungeon Master's Guide because those encounter building guidelines don't take into account magic items. They assume that your party has none. If you have a party that is generously endowed with magic items, and in particular magic weapons and armor, you need to ratchet up the difficulty to keep them challenged. So in that event, you might actually want to make an encounter quote-unquote deadly, knowing that for your players, it's really just going to be hard. Yeah. You know, if you if you go to the line between hard and deadly and say, okay, I'm going to go to 15% above this, that's probably appropriate for a party in which everyone's got a plus one weapon. You know, yeah. that's not going to be, it's not going to be deadly for them. They're going to pull it out. Well, and bringing it full circle, like you were talking about XCOM when we first started, I think as a, as a DM, one of the useful things, and if you're not doing it already, is keeping track of how the party is, is playing the game and mm-hmm. what are their tactics, what are their strategies, how do they go about diagnosing a battle and responding to it. And then over time, if you want to add in some complexity, some difficulty, I wouldn't say use it against them, but just you kind of know you're prepared to know what they do and do well and try to play fair. Right. Once they start to once they start to acquire renown, people who might see them as potential enemies will begin to take note of what they can do and how they do it. Right. And they, if they are particularly intelligent, 
will have that information and possibly use it against them. But the, you know, Hobgoblin Bandit King isn't going to have that information. Right. He's going to act like a Hobgoblin Bandit King. But if your PCs are eventually going to go after a Lich. Yeah, the Lich might and have, Archmage, some, have some thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, some 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 legendary enemy. They are going to be they are going to be interested in what the PCs do. And if the PCs at any time start to look like they might pose a threat, they are going to prepare specifically for that threat. Um, a, uh, a vampire prince, you know, mm-hmm. they are they are. You've your PCs have just become persons of interest to them, and so they may actually acquire some strategies and tactics that are specifically designed to defeat your PCs. But here's the key. They have a narrative reason to have that information. You are not playing a metagame as the DM saying, um, you know, this random white dragon is going to know what your players can do. A white dragon wouldn't care. (laughs) A white dragon wouldn't be paying attention. I don't even care if they're an ancient white dragon. An ancient white dragon is not going to be paying attention to the party because white dragons just don't do that. An ancient ancient red dragon might care. (laughs) An ancient green dragon might care. White dragon? Yeah. So, again, the book that you've written here is The Monsters Know What They're Doing. It's a fantastic resource for, I wouldn't say just DMs. I think players as well would really benefit from from reading through this and getting a sense of kind of what these monsters are, how they live, uh, what they might be thinking. And my understanding is you're working on another book right now. Uh, it's completed. It's it's completed. Uh, yeah. We're just in the uh, proofreading stage at Excellent. this point. It's going to be released in June. Uh, it's called Live to Tell the Tale, and it is the combat tactics guide for player characters. Awesome. And it originated as an ebook that I wrote and self-published. This new edition is revised. Uh, considerably expanded includes art which it didn't before uh it's going to be in a nice beautiful hardcover i just have to give a shout out to my publisher saga press for taking the work that i wrote and putting it in the most beautiful package everyone uh who's talked to me about it has commented on just how high quality the 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 physical book itself is. I'm quoting it right um, now. It's sturdy. For the monsters know what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm certain they're going to give the same treatment to live the tell of the tale. The uh, cover artist, Lily Pressland, uh, for the monsters know, also did the cover for live to tell the tale. And it is absolutely beautiful. I'm completely in love with the cover. Excellent. Um, but that's going to be out on June 23rd. Where can people buy the book? How can they find you if they have questions? Uh, So the book is a trade book, which means you can buy it from your favorite independent bookstore. You can buy it from uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you buy books just to read. I 
would hope that it would be carried in um, friendly local game stores, but game stores often don't work with trade book distributors. So you, if you don't want to buy it from a bookstore, if you want to buy it from your local game store and support your game store, which I totally encourage, uh, you might have to ask their buyers to special order it for you, and that would be through Simon & Schuster Distribution. I have links for that on my website, my personal website, which is spyandowl.com, and I can be contacted through that website through themonstersno.com or on Twitter at Keith Amon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for delving into some of these topics because reading about it, I was curious about what it would be like to be a, a player at your table. <laughs> it, uh, oh, well, you should have interviewed one of my players then. Uh, well, I, I may <laughs> do that. That'd be awesome. Um, but I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that, that you put in. And not only sort of while you're running these these. Uh, monsters, these encounters at the table. I think the importance, I think a lot of uh, sites and there's a lot of chatter out there about how to prepare for a session. And I think uh, one thing that maybe is, is undervalued is this idea of well, preparing on what your monsters, how your monsters would behave, what, what they would do. So having a whole book devoted to that, being able to pick your brain about how you go about that process and mix in engaging the players and keeping things fresh and interesting has been really helpful. Uh, so I hope other people uh, value that as well. Thank you. And, and good luck with the books. And I'd uh, be happy to have you on in the future. If you got uh, new things or want to touch on some uh, other subjects, just let me know. I'd be happy to have you on again. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.